This is the weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, your hosts, Drew Dawkin and Grant Collins, will have an in-depth conversation about what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Today, we're recording at the end of business on January 28th. It's Tuesday. So what we saw in the markets today was a rebound. Dow was up 187 points, so it was up 0.66%. S&P was up 32.61 points, or 1.01%. We saw a decrease in volatility. It was down uh, 10.70%. And we saw a slight rebound of the U.S. 10-year treasuries, um, and we're right now yielding 1.661%. So today, snapped the five-day losing streak for the Dow. On Monday, the Dow dropped more than 450 points, which was the largest since October. A couple of our highlights today were Apple and Goldman Sachs, which both rose more than 1.8% apiece. Uh, then we saw interest rates climbed um, largely due to, to consumer confidence. So the conference board uh, consumer confidence rose to 131.6 this month which was up from 126.5 in December. Um, the Dow pulled of the, the Dow pulled economists and they had expectations of 128. So the 131.6 numbers uh, surpassed that by quite a bit. Um, between January 20th to yesterday, we saw global stock markets lose $1.5 trillion in value. Um, crude dropped by 9% from uh, January 20th to yesterday, the 27th. And, um, Gold's been trading very high as well. Uh, with that, we have to really get into the heart of the matter and why we saw a five-day slide and why there's still, you know, quite a bit of tensions. Uh, mentioned last week, but the coronavirus has really kind of furthered. Um, there's been a bit more scare in that regard. Uh, Grant, let's kind of get into the coronavirus and the ramifications for economic markets across the board. Definitely. We're seeing journalists already call it a, a black swan event, but it's an e- epidemic that has become more quickly and, and more compared to the SARS that we saw earlier in the 2000s. We're seeing that it's already spread its way to Australia, Canada, France, and the United States. I think we're seeing people react to this uh, more significantly now than they did with the SARS virus because China now has the second largest economy. And so what does that mean with uh, weaker yen and slower Chinese growth, as well as consumer spending slowing in, in China? So I think that's why we're seeing one of the worst days we've seen since October last year. And a lot of the gains that we saw at the later part of 2019 and, and the start of this year already start to erode over the past five days. Yes, so there is definitely historical precedent for precedent for this. Um, there was an interesting article in Bloomberg which talked about how do you find the apex of these crises, and they incidentally coincided with the economists covering the epidemic, right? So in 2000, 2003, when the economists had SARS as their headline, that that was the highest point of the correction, and uh, likewise in 2014 when Ebola was their cover, that was when the panic reached its apex as well. Uh, so we've seen, um, there's there's a couple things that, you know, have happened. In 2015, when we had the Middle East respiratory virus, that came under control after three weeks. Last death 
occurred a little bit more than a month later. Uh, we don't, I don't think at this point, really have a good gauge of how long this is going to last and how contained it is. Uh, China's really shut down some traffic and travel in Wuhan. Um, but that being said, I mean, there's still a lot of potential for it to spread. I think instead of investing on new information, as you just pointed to, of of how long this is going to last, if there's a cure, how long it's spreading, instead of waiting for new information, a lot of investors are looking back, have a backward bias, and then they're also investing on a level in of anxiety more than actual information. And therefore, we're seeing crowd philosophy really may be a driver for the slide we've seen over the past five days. Yeah. So far, what we know is that the Chinese authorities have confirmed that there's more than 4,500 confirmed cases. There's been 106 deaths. When we look at what returns have been in similar situations, U.S. equity markets fell 10% um, before recovering with SARS uh, between 2002 and 2003. Now, I don't know how much of that analysis notes that we were also in uh, the dot-com bubble bursting, too. So, you know, you had two things going on together, right? But SARS was quite a large epidemic. Uh, We'll see if the coronavirus gets to that extent. But, you know, a 5 to 10% correction— it's not necessarily anything that anyone's ruling out, right? That's a great point. I also think if we think about the United States economy as well, with the last trade war that we've we've embarked on the past couple of years, I think we're a little more insulated uh, than we than we have been with with China as a partner. I think it will impact the the global economy, but I think the United States is where our economy stands. We can withstand that that five percent slide and rebound quite well. Yeah, we may be more insulated, but um, China as a percentage of the world's economy is significantly larger now than it was in 2003. Definitely. So definitely. I think we might see that counterbalance each other because um, you've had, you know, seven, 17, what, 17 years of, of pretty remarkable growth, which which has started in the 70s. So, um, you know, it's it's definitely the roaring tiger uh still today in in spite of a lot of these problems. Uh, I think we should get into the fact that, um, you know, interest rates are still very low. Uh, You know, a few months ago, we were talking about a lot of the crisis in the repo markets. And we've definitely talked about international appetite for our bonds. But, I mean, foreigners are still flocking to U.S. debt, right? I mean, so... Despite the fact that, you know, the rates are what they are, um, they're still a lot more attractive than a lot of places. I mean, Japan's considered a liquid. A lot of European economies are posting negative yields still. Um, so that's resulted in, you know, foreigners buying the equivalent of $800 billion worth of treasuries. Uh, and that's helped, su- you know, suppress our prices a little bit. Um, or, sorry, or the, the yields a little bit. Grant. I mean, what, what do we think about this phenomenon and what's going on with our treasury markets? It makes sense that we're seeing foreign foreign cash be parked in U.S. treasuries. It's a, it's a safe investment. If we think about Germany, it has a tight fiscal policy right now, and there's an undersupply of bonds. So 
for European investors, the U.S. Treasury makes sense. Also, if we think about Japan, the point that you just made is a lot of traders think that Japan bonds are a liquid. So overall, I think we're seeing that the even though we saw the repo market flurries in Q3 and Q4 and the Fed having to having to step in, I, I think overall U.S. Treasuries still remain a, a safe investment. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that certainly makes sense why, uh, you know, Foreigners are, or in foreign institutions are are purchasing them more. Uh, we should mo- note that in the United States, I think a lot of that growth has been shown because uh, commercial banks, since the crisis, are now required to have a lot more liquid assets. So you've naturally seen because of new um, regulations, uh, they're going to high quality liquid assets like like bonds. Um, but so, I mean, we talked about, you know, this kind of international element, but there's other elements that are affecting bonds too, right? I mean, we have, uh, you know, reduced labor demand. Uh, we've seen issues with Boeing. We're still in a very strong economy, but there's not a lot of people out there who say we're going to have an easy time hitting the Fed's inflation target of 2%, which could be a big drag, right? Yeah, we will see if the inflation target gets hit. We're still seeing interest rate at all-time lows. Uh, We saw that the Trump, President Trump, is calling for uh, increased cuts on the— There goes that trend again. (laughs) On the on the interest rates, but if if we look at the the ten-year, it's it's really important because that influences, as we talked about last week, mortgage rates as well as other loans. So if that yield continues to to move low, it, it can reflect worry about the economy and and. If we think about other fears coming in, the coronavirus as well, how that's going to impact the the global economy, we're seeing some strategists think that the ten year could actually fall back down to one point four two seven, which was we hadn't seen that since late August. Uh, but it's there is uncertainty in the bond market, and it, it could be that since we're seeing so much foreign investment, that it actually is propping up that that rate rather than it actually being a, a true indicator of where we are in the economy. I think those 1.42 number, that's the BMO analysis. Correct. And and if we hit that, we'd also hit a bunch of technical indicators along the way, too. So that'd be quite a bumpy ride between now and August. Yeah. One that we don't want to be on. No. Uh, I mean, and this kind of comes together, too. Um, the U.S. is now announcing 20-year bond sales uh, in, in, in a way to finance you know, our budget deficits that— um, you know, that are now topping $20 billion. So it's been a long time. We discontinued the 20-year, you know, in, in 1986, but we reinstated the series, you know, in, in 1993, but it's, you know, it hasn't been re-upped. Um, and I, I, I think that, so now we'll have, we've had a 10, and now we currently have a 30, so the 20 will be an addition. And I think it's, I mean, a good, a good idea overall. It's a good addition because now you have a, another point in between that the 10-year note and the 30-year treasury. I, I mean, as we just discussed, if we're still going to see continued foreign investment with a Fed policy that, that's keeping interest rates low and, and the U.S. bond market is attractive, why not be able to add another another bond that people can flow money into? It just will increase our flow. Yeah, and we'll hear more about that um, on on February fifth when the Treasury, you know, announces from its from its meeting. So uh, it's to be expected, but 
more details pending. Oil has continued to drop. Um, you know, had a couple weeks decline. Uh, I mean, I mean, yeah, yesterday it was a little bit of a rebound, but I mean, we have a couple issues here. I mean, China's got sluggish growth from historical standards, right? So it grew 6.1% in 2019, but that represents a 29-year low in terms of their economic expansion. And we also have, you know, just supply really increasing over demand, um, you know, both in terms of the U.S. producing, uh, and but also the Chinese refineries are processing a lot more. You know, they processed 651.98 million tons of crude oil. Um, there are going to be some factors that kind of push against this, uh, you know, whether that's Russia and OPEC plus, but, but Grant, what are we thinking? If we talk about China, it's the world's biggest crude importer. So if, if they are starting to slow down on that, I think that's going to have an impact on overall oil prices. We saw that prices rose after we had the trade agreement between the United States and China uh, as part as China is going to commit to an additional $54 billion in, in energy purchases. So that may prop up the the price of oil a little bit. I think this also comes into the coronavirus, whereas if we think that Chinese growth continues to slow and they're not using as much oil, then therefore that may actually impact the, the price overall if they're the world's largest producer of, of uh, or not producer, but importer of crude. Right. The, the Chinese have agreed to uh, purchase $54 billion more, but I think with agricultural purchases, it's a large quantity. Um, you know, a lot of analysts are kind of wary because of, you know, when and how and 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 what for in terms of these purchases. So that's it should be an optimistic note, but the feasibility has a lot of people worried as well, I think. Right. There's not those really hard line negotiations in there. It's it's would be great if it happens, but there's really no repercussions if it doesn't. Now in this regard, City had some very interesting analysis on I mean, we've had a lot of different geopolitical factors this year that's caused oil to spike. But their analysis is now that we, we, we have a lower ceiling because the last two years, solar energy has been more cost effective than, you know, traditional crude oil. So people are going to increasingly look to that as an alternative, you know, regardless of, of what OPEC's doing or regardless of what might be going on in the Middle East or Asian supply lines. Yeah, with with the cost of solar and so solar and wind coming down, uh, it, it makes sense that crude now ha- or an oil has a a ceiling because if if the price of oil continues to rise, then they can transition to a substitute if they look at solar and wind. Uh, one of the biggest problems that we're seeing actually with the renewable energy is is the battery technology. So I think that if if we're able to produce produce batteries that can store solar and, and wind energy, I think that we'll continue to see that ceiling of oil come down. Yeah, and I think there's been kind of a plethora of policy initiatives that have pushed this forward, right? So uh, I think it was Benoff of, uh, of Salesforce just kind of patted himself on the back because the U.S. is now agreeing to the a Trillion New Tree Initiative, uh, which a lot of people think are going to radically uh, reduce carbon, but um, <laughs> you know, but but like Europe and and other countries are making gigantic investments in 
they're agreeing deals. And so you've seen a lot of a lot of R and D into, you know, energy alternatives. Definitely. The the renewable energy is is something to watch out. But also if we just think about the oil supply globally, it's it's ahead of demand right now, which may also uh, be a be a big factor for that uh, oil ceiling price because if we if we have an oversupply then the then the prices will stay stagnant. In terms of housing, you know, data, we talked about this a little bit last week. Um, I mean, it's still kind of continued to slow. Um, new home sales were at a five-year low. Uh, but, you know, there's definitely, you know, some promise there. It's despite softening, uh, we're still seeing kind of post-recession highs or in and about there. So we're not we're not looking at anything like we did in 2008. Um, and then, you know, we're, we're also seeing uh, existing home sales, which account for about 90% of housing, actually actually did all right in December. So purchase of new homes fell in the south, which is the largest region. We also saw uh, the northeast, they they continued to decline. But then in the Midwest and west, they, they actually increased a little bit. I think if we continue to see mortgage rates the as low as they are, and if they can if they drop, if the 10-year does does begin to decrease, then I think we could see a, a, a pickup in the in the home purchases. I'd like to further our conversation, um, you know, la- last week, which was talking about asset classes. I think we were missed. One one thing we didn't talk about much was was hedge funds, and they certainly had a rough twenty nineteen. Um, so investors have taken out $98 billion worth of hedge funds in 2019, which was the largest in three years. Um, and that, that, that comes from the U.S. research platform Evestment. Grant, what's the catalyst for this? Are we seeing you know different levels of investor sophistication or risk appetites? Or what's driving the, the last year's flight from hedge funds? Could be a number of factors. It it may be moving to different asset classes. I think that's definitely one. I think if we think where we are today in the longest and best bull market, people could be taking their gains and, and running to safer investment. That that could be it. One piece to note on that, it was interesting that last year hedge funds returned on average 10.4%, which was the best figure since 2009. So uh, it, it's interesting after a great year, people people will pull so much money, but also that a lot of the the outflow was from funds between one and five billion dollars with assets under management. Uh, and so uh, a lot was flowed out of that compared to above five billion dollars. Uh, so I think that it's it may be an attractive of, of capital or, or suffer less cost of that of the larger fund but it, it, it's interesting to see that the smaller funds are where the money's coming out of although it performed you know better than 10 percent when we're looking at u.s equities that's quite abysmal which is 31 percent. and of course i understand people are involved in hedge funds for for a wide variety of you know reasons not just returns especially if they're accredited investors but that might be have some way, right? <laughs> Why pay the fees if I can have an ETF that returns thirty-one percent compared to paying two and twenty for ten four? Right. Kind of encapsulating, you know, some of our points we brought up next week that have there's been more analysis regarding them. Big thing is the Secure Act. 
Now, insurance uh, stocks did pretty well last year, but they definitely fell behind, you know, the S&P uh, 500, for example. They returned insurance companies, you know, total uh, took a like 23% um, over this last year. But with the SECURE Act, it's going to make it a lot easier for different forms of insurance, particularly annuities, uh, to find their way into 401ks. So there is there might be some increased interest in insurance stocks this year, and, and we might see a bit of a rally. That's a great point. I think the low interest rate environment has really hurt life insurance stocks over the past couple of years haven't had the the sales and the flows that that they would have liked so i think that this bill is gaining publicity across the country and drawing attention to annuities and, and how they can be used also having it so annuities are and can offer them employers can offer them in retirement plans i think just also increases the the knowledge as well as the accessibility of the products and and therefore it it really could show growth for life insurance companies as a whole. Mm -hmm. I think there's always going to be the philosophical debate on whether annuities and qualified plans are necessarily the most prudent thing to do. Uh, You know, kind of the seatbelt and a seatbelt component, right? Right. You got a tax deferred vehicle within a a tax deferred platform, but the accessibility to do it now, I think, regardless of whether, you know, whether it might make sense, depending on, you know, the advisor and the analyst, I, I still think old sales will take up. Definitely. And it, and it could be a, a lifetime income option for them as well, uh, which, which may be. And then we're also seeing the growth of uh, not only 401k, but the Roth 401ks as well. Now, in terms of something that is coming up very quick that we've gotten knows we've talked about it a lot, but it's actually happening is Brexit. Uh, So that's going to be one thing I'm looking at next week. Uh, On Friday, the clock will start and that we're going to create a 11th month, you know, negotiation period. There's going to be a lot of issues between the EU and the British government. Um, They're going to be talking about, you know, trade, security, uh, fishing rights is going to be a major issue. That'll be a big one. And so that will be you know, it would be fundamental to see how that plays out because that's really going to affect the entire trading agreement. Now, if the time elapses, I think from what I've seen is the UK will just go to the WTO standard rules, which is going to be a lot more restrictive than than they were, of course, when they were within the EU, but what they could be if they brokered a potential EU agreement. Yeah, some of the concessions that the EU are, are, are coming out with are, we'll see if Boris Johnson's government uh, agrees to because they're, they're pretty out there. Uh, we're, we're seeing that demanding full protection enforcement of intellectual property with no automatic recognition of UK standards, which is a pretty big one. We've seen that with the US and China trade deal, that's been a big sticking point. Uh, also, uh, allowing the UK to take part in EU projects as long as they pay for them and accept it doesn't have any decision-making power. That doesn't sound like Boris Johnson. And then a big one that you just discussed uh, is the fishing area around the UK. Uh, that, that could be a huge a huge driver uh, for the agreements because it doesn't look like the British is going to gain back all control over all their waters, which I think is going to be a, a big conflict for them. And it appears that the European Union is going to try to force the UK to adhere to the same state aid and 
labor protections that ex that that were required in the EU in the first place. So if Britain wants to kind of find itself as a way to you know create cheaper products and you know sell them easier, it's going to have a hard time to do that because a lot of their labor standards and a lot of their um, you know social nets are going to have to remain intact. So it's still going to be you know an expensive workforce. And, and they're, they're going to have a harder time putting their goods to market. Absolutely. So we're kind of wrapping up on half an hour. And like, uh, like always, we'll talk about what's coming up. Uh, no, Grant, you were talking a little bit about Iowa. Um, I mean, impeachment is what it is. I, you know, God knows what's going to happen. Uh, <laughs> I don't think even he knows. <laughs> so, so I think, think Iowa might be a better... Better thing to talk about, especially, uh, I mean, the markets are kind of trading markets and actually stock markets are somewhat pricing in uh, more likelihood of Bernie, um, you know, taking the nomination. So maybe we talk about that a little bit. Yeah, he took a big jump in the polls. And then we see uh, Pete there in second. I, I think it's interesting to see uh, Bernie make such a big leap there closer to closer to it. I think I think if we see Pete actually finish in second and close to Bernie, I think he can get a lot of momentum. Uh It'll be interesting to see how Bloomberg jumps in, considering he's pretty much missing the missing Iowa, but he's spending all of that money on advertising. Every other podcast I listen to, I, I hear one of his commercials, uh, and then it's interesting to see that Warren have Warren has fallen in the in the polls after we saw the New York Times endorse her and, and Klobuchar. So, I, I I guess where I might just push back a little bit is uh, if Pete gets second in Iowa, I think he's in pretty rough shape second or third because Bernie's got the momentum coming in New Hampshire and then when we get in Nevada and South Carolina Pete is doing abysmally so he'd really need to clinch one of these early ones to get any kind of momentum um and I guess what I can foresee happening is you know it siphoning off between uh Bernie and and, and Biden and if that's the case then a disproportionate amount of Warren um supporters will go to Bernie and she's, you know, solid number three in the polls. And then, and then Biden will take a lot of Pete supporters. Right. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, we'll be, we'll be watching that. I'm sure we'll drop an update after the Iowa primary and see, see what happened in the markets, but, uh, thanks again. And, uh, we'll see you guys next week. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked in any of the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.